Hello, I'm James Ashton, a financial writer, commentator and senior advisor at Portland. Today I'm joined by The Economist, best-selling author and board director, Dambisa Moyo. Dambisa spent a decade at Goldman Sachs and the World Bank and gained her PhD in economics from the University of Oxford. Now she spends a chunk of her time in the boardroom as non-executive director at Chevron, 3M and Condé Nast. Today we're discussing how good, balanced boards can help corporations run better in a complicated world and what happens when they don't. This is To The Point. Dambisa, hi. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. As well as the writing and the speaking and the marathon running, you've spent the last decade or so sitting on boards of some really significant multinationals. I'm interested to start there. Why do that? What was the draw? So first of all, thank you so much for hosting me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, what was the draw? I think in in short, it's complex puzzles. I love questions and puzzles that don't have obvious answers. And certainly um, being on the boards of large global complex organizations that have hundreds of thousands of employees in different cultures and jurisdictions at times of financial, political, sociological change and transformation uh, is definitely uh, a place to be, if you like, uh, um, sort of open-ended puzzles where ideology and sort of prepackaged answers just don't seem to work. Hmm. And you've summed a lot of that up and a lot of those findings from, from a decade or so on those boards, and they include Barclays, Barrick Gold, SAB Miller, now Chevron, 3M and Condé Nast. You've summed a lot of that up in your book, How Boards Work. Some perspective then on what being a NED involves. There used to be something about, I think, collecting baubles at the end of your career. But I think now I see it differently, writing about it. You're laughing already. There's greater responsibility. The mandate has grown. Yes. So first of all, I, you know, I too, uh, as, a, as a public person, as a citizen, heard of those stories of sort of uh, people playing golf and having lots of uh, fun wine dinners. And I can assure you that that is not uh, a good characterization of what goes on. Um, corporate boards are, are really there to provide oversight to um, the day-to-day operations of the organization, which are really the day-to-day aspects or responsibilities are in the the, the hands of the uh, the management team. Um, I looked back to see when the original boards, the earliest boards were established and it went down to the 1600s, was the first board that I could record. And really the, it used to be two mandates. Um, one was to provide oversight on strategy. So not just getting bogged down in today's tactics um, but really thinking about longer term, the strategic imperative of a company. And that change added to that was the importance of succession, really thinking about hiring and firing the CEO who runs these organizations. Um, that has changed recently. We've added a third mandate. So not just overseeing strategy, not just succession. We now also are responsible for ESG. So this is basically the cultural backbone of the company, environmental, social, as well as uh, as governance issues. So that is how this evolved. And um, we certainly are spending a lot of time on each of these areas, given the challenges the world faces. And so a non-executive, I mean, I, I, the, the one view might be that you come to the fore eight to 10 times a year. That might be when the number of board meetings a big company has. It might be half a day. It might be a full day. But I observe from organizations I'm involved in, actually, the, the board meeting itself is very much the distillation of what's going on. 
How do you balance time between what happens in those meetings and all the other stuff I suppose you're meant to be doing, visiting plants, talking to people around the sides? I mean, it's not a role that switches on and off, I don't think, is it? No, I don't think so either. I mean, I think that in, in many respects, the um, the idea that we have, you know, whatever, five meetings a year uh, is, a, is slightly a red herring because it's not that we just sort of randomly show up and then, you know, pop away and disappear again because the world is constantly changing. So if you're on the board of a, of a bank, as I was with Barclays Bank, and, uh, you know, the interest rates are moving on a day-to-day basis and there are issues around competitors going under or for having struggling with, uh, with uh, you know, bad debts or the global economy, uh, questions around consumption and consumerism and savings um, is something that's continuing. I mean, I think smart and good um, um, board members are constantly engaged and constantly plugged in, understanding these challenges. You can't just switch off and on, uh, given the, the importance and the challenges of these organizations. Um, we are kept abreast of the situations, um, in some cases on a weekly basis, from uh, a lot of the um, uh, CEOs and managers of the businesses on a day-to-day basis. But it's also safe to say that when the crises hit, and they do hit, that number of five uh, meetings a year really changes quite quickly. Um, you can find yourself on calls on on a daily basis. And uh, you know, my one example from Barclays uh, in 2010, um, we went from sort of a promise of around uh, somewhere between five and eight meetings to something like 53 meetings that, that year. So it can happen uh, very quickly. And obviously with COVID and the pandemic, uh, we've seen a, a great uptick in the amount of engagement boards are, are uh, and how they're engaging with uh, with management. I think it's worth mentioning, Dan B, so what you have been through in those uh, in those years on the boards. I mean, CEO succession, uh, big M&A, regulatory fines, dealing with dominant family shareholders, activist shareholders. Um, as you say, I think you're still missing the um, – you haven't had a collapse in insolvency yet. That would complete the set, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'd rather avoid that, actually. I mean, I'm in the business of trying to keep these companies alive and operational as going concerns for uh, the foreseeable future, certainly into long into the future, I hope. And I've been very fortunate because um, many of these companies that I've served on have been around for 300 years plus, 100 years. Um, and so they've seen a lot of the – uh, the sort of uh, ebbing and flowing of, of life and society. So uh, I hope that I'm a custodian for businesses that will continue to, to survive uh, far into the future. Tell me about the CEO role. Uh, do they welcome challenge always? Well, so it's a great question. Um, one of the, the things that I have um, done in my, my board career is that I've served on boards in different jurisdictions. So um, the UK, the US, Canada, continental Europe. And the answer to your question actually, interestingly enough, varies depending on where you are. Um, I would argue that in the UK, the relationship between the board and the CEO is generally quite um, check and challenge. Um, in fact, one of my former CEOs uh, made the point that he didn't need an activist in the stock because the board actually was the activist. Um, and so I thought, I've always thought that was kind of an interesting characterization. But it is, in, in a sense, true because um, you have quite a different dynamic between the, the board and the management team and the CEO in particular in the US, I would argue, where there seems to be much more um, a sort of collaboration and the board to the CEO is seen as much more of a place of sanctuary to be able to go and say, I have absolutely no idea what to do about X, Y, or Z. Um, can you please help with guidance, a place where they can get support? So um, I think that the, I'm you know, perhaps over-egging it a little bit for in the interest of uh, of brevity here, but um, the, the fact of the matter is I think the relationship with the CEO does change and does vary depending a lot with the sort of cultural norms of a particular uh, environment or jurisdiction. And which CEO labelled you as an activist? 
<laughs> I can't tell you that. I'd have to kill you, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably in the book, Dambisa. Um, it is. If for smart people, they'll be able to figure it out, but I won't name names. <laughs> Okay, and that role of the CEO, and I, I've, you know, of course, I've written on that recently in a book. I mean, the, the, and you make the point. I think the, um, the, the role of the CEO has expanded. Uh, you know, climate change, duty of care for workers. I think something that was never really on their agenda until the the pandemic struck. And you've got this demand, I think, for more human leaders who are more transparent and honest, and so on. And and we this expression, the chief everything officer, has been with us for a while. Have boards had to follow? I mean, as you you do talk about those mandates expanding, you never quite know what boards should be considering next. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, quite candidly, I find this slightly worrisome. I mean, I, I do absolutely subscribe and understand the imperative of um, needing not just to oversee strategy and to hire the CEO, um, but also to do ESG. Um, but I do worry that sometimes in the throes of metrics or trying to deal with everything from voter rights and abortion to uh, racial discrimination, um, uh, obesity and gun control. I mean, this whole plate of things that are much more public policy than there are business. I think that there's a risk that the board and the CEO management team uh, lose sight of the things that businesses are supposed to be good at. Things like allocating capital, thinking about uh, generating returns. And, and just to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying that these social aspects don't have an impact on business. But what I am saying is that we've traditionally, as business people, relied on government to take a lead um, and public policy to take a lead on defining uh, what an environment looks like. Um, and what's happened in recent times is that there's been so much volatility and perhaps public policy has been a little bit slow on the uptake in terms of addressing some of these challenges, which means businesses had to step in. Mm. And obviously, I mean, I should say that the, the risk there is obviously that your CEO is so busy fighting fires on uh, a whole host of important things like climate and voter rights, abortion, et cetera, uh, worker advocacy, but actually is not doing the job of allocating capital uh, as, you know, as perhaps as, as centrally as they ought to be. So. Hmm. I suppose a good, you know, good analogy there is there's so much talk about profit with purpose, but I think actually you don't get the legitimacy to pursue your purpose un unless the profit keeps rolling in. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, we, these businesses have to survive. Um, and we're not at all suggesting that they ought to be corrupt or, you know, so survive at all, uh, at all costs. Um, and there obviously are better ways to do business in a much more inclusive, much more supportive of society way. But, um, I do worry that, you know, we are, we do lose sight of competition. Um, we do lose sight of the fact that we are competing with companies that are in jurisdictions where they don't have such stringent rules. Um, or indeed, even if you say, well, we ought to be leaders in this space, um, I think that there is a lot of risk that businesses um, are, are basically doing things or board members and CEOs are, are pining on areas that are not their ballywick or their areas that, are, that they're quite mm -hmm. okay with things, as I mentioned, like voter rights or abortion. I mean, I really, there's a societal uh, norms and choices that I don't think corporations should be in, in the driver's seat in, in resolving. Mm. It's interesting because there has been a debate and there has been time when actually, and I, I think you know, a good example might be Brexit in the UK, when there was a hope and expectation that more companies, more CEOs would step forward with an opinion. And um, a lot of those organisations are very reserved, are very conservative and don't want to be called out on those issues. I think what you're saying is with, with things like Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all of these, you know, very important social issues, that sometimes the CEO on the board is now the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. 
Yeah, and look, it's interesting because I think something like Brexit um, is was there had economic ramifications, um, as we, are, we we know, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, cost of capital, in terms of operations. So I think it's a it's a much it's a much easier uh, and perhaps shorter direction of travel to go from uh, uh, from the, you know Brexit to we need CEOs and businesses to, to opine, speak up, and say what that might impact might be. I think it's much harder. Um, when you start talking about some of the other social issues that we're, we're, we're addressing here. And again, I think that um, as a citizen, you expect government and public policy to protect uh, against discrimination and to have rules and guardrails um, that uh, you know, corporations can abide by and, and step into. And, and I think that there's been, in some cases, a bit government's been a bit slow on the uptick. Mm. And look, I think you think boards work well, and I'm just curious then what needs to change because we still have quite a lot of failings, or at least it feels like there's a lot of failings, whether they're ethical, environmental, safety-led. So where can boards improve? Yes. So look, first of all, just to be absolutely clear, there's a lot of scope for improvement, but I think we oughtn't lose sight of the fact that every day um, billions, if not trillions of, of parts from IKEA nails and, uh, you know, flat boards to McDonald's hamburgers to Rolls-Royce jet engines are produced and delivered across borders without incident. I mean, if you just take a moment to think about the fact that you can order something on Amazon Prime and it will be at your door tomorrow, no questions asked. I mean, this is a lot to be said about the the, the sort of uh, functioning, high levels of functioning that corporations, boards, as well as management teams uh, importantly, management teams are uh, executing on, on a day-to-day basis. Are there uh, mistakes made? Of course there are. We see them. Um, and of course, because I, I think if you think about it in the broad scheme of things, it's quite a rarity, but it, they do happen. And, uh, you know, uh, just to give you some specific points of where I think there's opportunity for uh, for improvement, let me take the three parts of the mandate of the board. In terms of strategy, I do think that rightly or wrongly, companies are, have been sucked into more and more short-term thinking. That is an area where boards can be very helpful in starting to really push back and say, you know, blocking and tackling during a pandemic is important. Uh, we want to know what the balance sheet looks like in terms of financial state. We want to know what how employees are doing. want to make sure the operations are working in terms of supply chains. But we should not lose sight of the structural long-term uh, aspects. With respect to uh, succession, um, no doubt about it. We do reasonably well um, in terms of uh, of assessing financial acumen, ability to run teams, ability to be a leader. But we haven't done a great job, uh, clearly, uh, around ethics. And, and frankly, I talk about this in the book. I don't think we've actually done a lot of ethics uh, research and work on ethics, much you know, nowhere near as much as we ought to have been doing. So I think there's an area there, and I, I suggest some areas of improvement on that. And then with respect to ESG. Um, look, again, I think it's very easy to for all of us to say, you know what, there's something here. Corporations should be good citizens. But I also want to make sure that, you know, we, we don't fight discrimination with discrimination. Um, by that, I mean, in our efforts to become more diversified, more women, more minorities, um, which is just good business because the world is it, it, uh, not just the world in terms of our customers, but also our regulators, our shareholders is more diverse. So companies ought to be more diverse, but we don't want to send a signal inadvertently that white uh, men, high performing white men are not welcome in a company. And that would be completely uh, against um, the, the important need for companies to succeed and to compete. We, in order to compete, mm-hmm. we need the best people in the best seats 
um, and, uh, you know, they have the best teams. And that doesn't mean excluding uh, white males just because they happen to be white males. I think we need to be a bit mm. more thoughtful about that. Yeah. And, and binding those three areas together, I mean, what about transparency and communication? I mean, there is a sense that companies need to, you know, tell the full story all the time, but that, that kind of isn't the way business works. You can't be giving away trade secrets when you're developing a new product or, you know, hiring policies and so on. I mean, needs to be, there needs to be a line drawn, doesn't there? Yeah, I do think there needs to be a line drawn because a lot of the times, um, you know, in fact, when people ask me, what is it? What's the key ingredient for a successful board member? For me, it's judgment. Um, you know, when we're hiring for an audit uh, uh, seat in the board, I can come up with 10,000 uh, um, people who've got audit credentials. But really what we're looking for is good judgment. And good judgment means understanding that you sometimes have to suspend, um, you know, decision making uh, or you have to, to do much more work uh, around getting more information. In fact, Omicron is a good example of this. You know, we don't want people just running out and saying that the sky is falling down. We don't quite yet have enough information to make calls. And so we deal with those types of issues all the time. And I worry sometimes, I mean, by the way, I'm a very big transparency uh, advocate, but at the same time, I understand that sometimes you need, you need to have fuller information. And by the way, uh, boards, are making a lot of decisions without full information, but certainly fuller information before we make those judgment calls. So I'm not a big um, supporter of sort of, you know, all all information all of the time. Um, and I'm not at all advocating sort of dishonesty or, uh, or encouraging companies to make decisions that are, you know, wrong and not not need to be, to stand up to the the light of day, but I do think that there are some lags sometimes in the decision making process that people need to be familiar with, and also be fully aware that you don't have a full um, picture of what's going on in a boardroom or wh why it's certain decisions being made. And the number of times people say, "Well, you know, what do you think of Company X?" and I'm not in the boardroom, I'm not an employee there, um, and I think it, it's it's wrong for us to opine without knowing the full set of facts, or at least as best as they can be articulated at the moment in time. Yes, perfect visibility I jotted down, and it does sound like a get-out, but no board or company has perfect visibility exactly. of certainly external matters, but also internal matters. And, and then I think the judgment you talk about is based on making the best decision you can, you can at the time. But what about something like, I'm interested in your small group, the board sat on top of these big organisations, tens of thousands of people with operations all over the world. How do you surface issues then in the board? How do you go searching for what isn't in the board pack? Issues like ethics, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So it's a great question. And I think the first thing I'd say is it's not static. Um, I'm not going to say to you, James, here's a package of how we do it. And it's forever going to be like that. Of course not. The world is changing. So we are constantly upgrading how we get information and how we form information so that we don't have an asymmetry of information or we don't end up with data that doesn't give you a, a fuller picture of what's actually going on. So um, as a practical matter, we certainly uh, administer surveys to uh, existing uh, employees, um, but, uh, you know, which can be quite broad, which can be quite extensive. Um, but we also have boards have relationships, natural relationships, I would say that emerge with um, management team members that are 
um, in in your particular area. So for me, I've grown up in finance, so I tend to lean in a lot more with people who are on the audit committees or the CFO, etc. But beyond that, you know, we are also um, you know engaging with third parties and getting information, um, not just from accounting firms, search firms, and uh, and uh, legal firms, but also more and more from platforms and technologies that um, are giving us a peek into how um, our employees present, past and potentially future are thinking about the business. So if you think about Glassdoor or the layoff or Blind, these are all platforms where people can actually give feedback, unsolicited feedback about what they're thinking about what's going on in the company. We use that as well. Um, and it's not necessarily in an organized fashion, um, but I think it's very helpful in, in really going beyond uh, just one source of information. Mm. And it's worth mentioning, I mean, the, the you know, most people do, the nine years is seen as the time, it's the moment at which, you know, a non-executive director loses their independence and their, their ability to think for themselves. I'm not sure I, I believe that, but it's, it is incredible to me what can happen in what is seen as quite a, a long period of time. I mean, in your time at Barclays, you mentioned Barclays, <laughs> um, I think you were on the board that elevated Bob Diamond, Anthony Jenkins came in and left, and Jess Staley arrived. So, I mean, it's it, it's dizzying, really, isn't it? Well, um, so you're right that uh, at a high level, I also don't subscribe to the nine-year rule. Uh, I see the relevance. I've seen the arguments. But I think on balance, my sense is that you, you want to make sure that you don't risk losing um, a lot of the historical uh, know-how and knowledge base um, that is important for future decision-making. Uh, because people are are leaving or because they've reached a nine-year term. So I think there's a bit more nuance that needs to go into that. But yeah, you're right. Like There's a lot of stuff happened. I've been on boards 12 years. I've seen a financial crisis, a pandemic, populism with Brexit. I've seen interest rates. Now we're talking about inflationary concerns. I mean, a lot happens. I You didn't mention earlier, but I've had a chairman die in office. I mean, it's like, it is, it, as they say, it's not for kids, folks. It's it's really <laughs> a daunting and challenging, um, you know, uh, responsibility. And six months before, um, I, you know, I didn't think anybody would ask boards to opine on, on abortion. We're being asked to do that now. Before that, you know, we're being asked to talk about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and react to these things that sometimes more and more are not in my um, in in our area as as board uh, members. And sitting here with you now, you know, I can't tell you what's going to be important in six months, but I can assure you something else is going to pop up that I, you and I, neither of us will be able to anticipate. So yes, I think there's lots of volatility um, and you have to expect that. You talked about that you contrasted UK and US a, a little a bit earlier on. And I, I'm curious about your view on this. So there is an argument that UK companies have suffered versus US companies. There's just too much governance in the UK. There's not enough growth. Founders are being constrained. They either don't want to bring their companies to the market or the boards are very risk averse. Institutional shareholders are missing out. Discuss. Yeah, um, I'm, I am worried about that. Um, I think you do. there's one other about thing. About the else. UK? I'm, I'm worried. Well, let me put it this way. I'm less worried than I was now that the, the Brexit has happened. Um, I've written extensively on this. Um, I think there's a fundamental difference um, around the legality and responsibility of public policy and sort of what, what comes out of that is how the legal framework operates. Um, in short, in Europe, they're very rules-based um, and they are very much, uh, I would argue, that the approach tends to be very much glass um, half empty, meaning re regulation is there to uh, to risk mitigate. 
Um, I would, and this is shorthand. Uh, and in the U.S., the mood is to generally more of not rules based, but more principles based, more degrees of freedom to make judgment calls. Um, and there's much less focus on risk mitigation as being an end point. It's more about, okay, if this is the risks, now how do we invest? Um, I, the reason I said I'm much less worried about the UK is that the UK is obviously no longer part of that European sort of uh, rules-based uh, approach. They're much more engaged in a sort of, uh, uh, I think, move towards more principles-based, which is really the nature of the British legal system, common law. And, you know, I was just uh, participating in this global investment summit, which is focused on climate. And I think it was very clear there that we can't just talk ourselves into net zero emissions um, being constrained as a solution. That is clearly a piece of the problem. We've got to risk mitigate these emissions. But it was very important that the conversation quickly moved into where are we going to invest? Is it solar, wind, electric vehicles, hydrogen, biofuels? Like it has to move on from just being about risk mitigation. So as I think mm. about that uh, dichotomy, um, and, and by the way, there are lots of knock-on effects. How do you think about compensation in that regard? Um, you know, in the U.S., a lot of American CEOs, a lot of corporate life in America has paid enormous salaries. And the argument is that um, that really helps drive innovation. It helps to drive a lot more of the investment um, uh, ethos. Um, and, and that, would, you could argue, is a, is a very different uh, uh, lens from the, the U.K. And, and Europe, certainly where, where the CEO salaries tend to be kept. So you think the UK might switch? We're breaking away from the continent and any concerns about governance holding back growth, we might start to look a bit more American over the next few years. Well, I think there's a middle ground. Um, I'm on the Oxford University Endowment um, and we look at these type of issues a lot. And I think that there is a sense that um, there's a, a big focus on trying to drive a venture capitalist um, sector, more business-driven sector in the UK. And there's an understanding that to do that, we can't just have government and policy making focused only on downside risks. It has to be there to also think about um, uh, being a first loss uh, risk provider, um, but government also helping to provide uh, more clarity and regulations to help jumpstart um, investment and, and thinking much more around uh, technology, climate, and some of these big areas, um, how business and private sector can come to the table. And I think, as I said, the Global Investment Summit this year is just one specific example of that, and there's lots more. What was your first time on a board like? You were 39, you joined SAB Miller. Yes. Um, you know what? It was exhilarating in, in some respects. I did get very good advice, which was to say, um, don't say anything on your first day um, because you're in these meetings. Your, your job was really to absorb and to, to understand what's going on. Um, I think I, I did write this in, the, in my book. Somebody, a friend of mine who's also been on boards, made a very good point. It's like it feels like you're joining in the middle of a movie. Um, so there's no point in sort of jumping in the middle of the film and then offering your perspective. You probably want to just figure out, okay, wait a second, who's who here? Who's the villain? Who's the protagonist? So um, it was wonderful to to be on that, that in that boardroom um, and to try and figure out, you know, what was going on strategically, the succession aspects and timelines. And, and it was very early on, but we still were already thinking about ESG. But, uh, you know, I, I hope I added value quickly because within six months, I was appointed the chairman of the risk committee for that board. Um, but it's, you know, as I, I, I think I, I hope I've made clear here, the one constant in all these boards is that you're always going to be surprised. Um, something is always lurking and you just want to make sure that there are good judgments that are being made 
by the board and by the management team that will reduce the risk of, uh, of a business going under. Mm. And you make the point in the book um, about you know you were thirty nine and you were quite different to a lot of people around the boardroom table. Yes, uh, you know through race, through gender, through the ideas that you were bringing from an academic and a macroeconomic uh, experiences. You also say, and this plays into the whole diversity debate. You have to bring more than just your identity to the table. Absolutely, um, I would say the other thing that I uh, didn't have. When I first joined my, my when I joined my first board, is I, I would, did not come from the C suite. Um, the C suite meaning I wasn't the CEO or CFO or COO of a, of a large corporation. Um, and so, fortunately, I think in terms of where the world is now, there's a clear recognition in boardrooms that we need more diversity, not just diversity in gender or in race, but also in ideas. Um, if we're going to compete against China, um, we're going to compete in a technological. Uh, era of, of AI and quantum computing, if we're going to compete at a time when climate change has become a big issue and there are real sociological challenges around inequality, et cetera, um, we, the only way we can do that is by really um, having different voices, different perspectives around the room. I know, and I think people hopefully will better understand this point uh, if they do read my book, that boards are dealing with complex problems. And so the nature of diversity shouldn't just be for the sake of diversity. It's we want to have people who can help problem solve, have good judgment. Um, the good news is that there are plenty of people who look like me, um, women, blacks, Latino, Asian, you know, take your pick, um, who um, should be in boardrooms um, because they would be adding tremendous value. And there's a better recognition now that there isn't one just one route into the boardroom, that diversity does matter. Um, and so I think that that's good news. But we should not lose any perspective here to the situation where we end up with people um, in boardrooms just because they happen to be women or minorities. That's 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 not helpful. And um, and I, I think I would like to think it doesn't. There's no need for it to happen, given there's so much talent out there in diverse sense. Um, also, as you pointed out, particularly diverse in terms of ideas. So, and Dan Beeser, on the subject of targets, and you talked about all the, the, the reasons we need diversity in the boardroom, do you think targets are compatible with achieving diversity? Or is there that risk that the pendulum gets tipped, that sometimes experience can be sacrificed, as you said earlier in our conversation, you know, white males will still contribute? Well, you know, I think most board members and most boardrooms, certainly the ones I serve in, are are sensitive and alight to this. Um, I think there was a moment, perhaps I'd like to say a number of years ago, where there was a sense that, oh gosh, if we put a black woman in this board seat, we don't get we lose quality. Um, and I think we're past that. I mean, really, uh, you know, I like to say I woke up one day and I used to have uh, dreams of being on the board of Amazon. I woke up one day and Indra Nui. Um, who's Asian woman who had run PepsiCo for, I think, 16 years, had done a, phenom a phenomenal job. She was appointed to the board. And I thought, of course she would. I mean, like the people that they're appointing these boards, you know, who are minorities or women, et cetera, are at such a high caliber that they, of course, are going to add value. Um, and so, look, I don't worry about that at all. I just think that we shouldn't, as board members, have a lazy muscle about pursuing the talent that we need for these corporations. Um, and I, I do feel by and large that the the sort of perhaps mad rush to uh, to meet diversity targets, which was just after Black Lives Matter, 
um, I think it's become a little bit more sensible to say, hey, look, we do want to have diversity, but it's in no one's interest, not the candidate, not the company, um, not society, to rush in and put somebody in a seat that they can't compete in or can't perform in. Um, and I, as I said, I, I worry less that that's a problem because I do know the talent is out there. And just finally, that point on uh, personal reputation, I suppose it is, because as you point out, it's impossible to know what's coming up six months down the line. And I suppose with some of these roles, joining some of these boardrooms, it must be impossible to know what you're really getting into. Well, isn't that life? <laughs> isn't that life in <laughs> yeah. general? Um, and so, yeah, I look, I take the view, this is not about playing gotcha and trying to figure out the answer. It's not about that. It's about being best prepared to deal with the trauma when it comes uh, and it invariably will come. I'm, I was on the board of a company with a, a, a man who's in his 80s now and I saw him for dinner not too long ago and he said to me, you know what, in over 80 years on the planet, I will tell you one thing, you're always going to be surprised. And I've really taken that to heart because I think if you do ad adopt an attitude of, hey, I'm, I'm going to be surprised, I don't even know what it is, what's coming, um, at least you'll build the institutions, the processes, the manpower. I don't think I'm allowed to say manpower anymore, um, uh, given the world, but uh, the, the sort of worker base um, to contend with those challenges. Um, and that's really what you're doing. You're building processes and systems um, that can withstand any form of challenge, pandemics, financial crises, political upheavals. They're bound to happen. They are going to happen, sometimes even employee revolts. Um, but it's just about keeping your uh your systems and institutions um running you know sort of working over so that they can address these issues uh, and mm. not being able to come up with an answer uh, on any of these issues and, yeah. and uh, a priori that's fantastic just finally in all of these to the point podcast ambisa we ask the same question of guests uh, in such a busy and noisy world where do you go or what do you do when you need space to think and try to find clarity that is definitely on my treadmill, uh, as you know. When it's cold, it's on my treadmill. When it's uh, warm outside and outside, I, I am a latter-day marathon runner, um, and so I really love running. It's, it's it's an odd thing. It's an individual sport in many ways, but it's also very. It can be very community and team based. So I love being able to bridge those two. But but certainly for thinking and reflecting, I go to the I go to the treadmill. <laughs> Great stuff, Dembisa. Thanks for the conversation today. It's a pleasure, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.